If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You want to know what the best email marketing service is for your small business? Well, I've got the team for you. EmailToolTester.com is the place to find reviews and tutorials of newsletter services like ActiveCampaign, MailChimp, GetResponse, and many more. Download their free comparison spreadsheet that will help you find the best email marketing service among many providers. Just Google Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. Again, just Google it. Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Mark Penn. He's the chairman and CEO of Stagwell Incorporated. Stagwell Incorporated is the result of the combination of Stagwell Group, which Mark founded uh, with the help of Steve Ballmer's investment initially, and MDC Partners, most recently, that just combined. On the show today, we talk about his journey from the beginning of polling in his early teens to founding Penn and Shown, which he ended up selling to WPP, becoming the CEO of Burston Marsteller as well, leading that along the way, being the lead pollster for President Bill Clinton and later Hillary Clinton through her Senate races and presidential bid in 2008. 
We also talked a lot about what Stagwell's up to and where Stagwell is going, what the strategy is, and why they are going to be a different type of holding company for marketers and brands to work with. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mark Penn. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. We've got a lot to talk about, but I thought since you've You've been a pollster, so to speak, or ran polls for for many famous people like the Clintons in the past. Do you do you remember what the first poll was that you ever took? My first poll was actually on race relations, and I was maybe fourteen years old, and I I saw a show, a CBS show on race relations, and they had a poll, and I said, wouldn't it be interesting if I polled my faculty at the school I went to to see how their racially uh, racial attitudes compared to that of the country. And so that was my first poll. I conducted it. I compared the results. My faculty was more racially tolerant and inclusive, uh, which was good for them, good for the findings. And many years later, actually, my advisor had a copy of the poll in his file, and he, he sent it to me. So I have it framed on a wall, although it's fading. That's amazing. What was it about like the poll or the information? Like what intrigued you as a 14 year old to do something like that? I'm just curious. I thought the idea that you could find out what people thought without talking to them was really fascinating. You could just send these things out and then use a computer and tabulate it all and count it up. I mean, I also later on in, uh, in high school was the, the only person almost to be thrown out of school for a poll because uh, I did a a poll of the students on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was a private school, Horace Mann. So I published, you know, well, I was the editor of the paper. So I published all the percentages who had sex, who had drugs, etc. And apparently the board of trustees did not appreciate that particular poll. <laughs> I think you might be the first re- rebel I've ever heard of that used polling as their method to rebel. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, let's talk business. Uh, your path to CEO and chairman at Stagwell, it's been an interesting one. And obviously you got your start in as you, at a 14-year-old, but like, what was the first professional gig you remember? Well, the first professional poll was actually when, when Doug Schoen and I, we did a poll for the New York State Democratic Party. You know, we were both uh, on the Harvard Crimson, and we had actually gone to high school together. And he knew that I knew how to do polls because I had done a, a similar thing at Harvard where they didn't want you to know the housing choices. So I showed up in the dining rooms and then published uh, all the housing popularity, much to the administration's chagrin. So he knew I knew how to do polls, and he had like a summer job, you know, in politics, and and we got together, and I showed him how to do a poll, and he kind of introduced me to ins and outs of politics. And uh, I mean, our first poll was New York State Democratic Party, uh, 1976 primary, of which I, in the middle of the poll, I go to Doug, I say, Doug, you got to stop this poll. And he, I say, why? I say, well, you, you, you've left one of the candidates off of the Democratic primary. He says, which one? I say, well, Jimmy Carter. He says, nah, forget about it. He'll never go anywhere. <laughs> so... That was kind of our first, but our first big assignment really was doing the polling for Ed Koch, who was a a New York City congressman running for mayor. And I think it really helped design a unique strategy, essentially being in the center, you know, something that getting the swing voters as as Koch really kind of actually restored fiscal responsibility, uh, stood up to the unions, even through 
through strikes in a way that those municipal unions, at least in that case, had driven New York City to uh, to the brink of bankruptcy. And Koch, um, Koch, among many things, tried to restore honesty and uh, fiscal responsibility and rebuild New York. You started Penn Schoen Berlin with your high school friend, essentially. <laughs> essentially, yeah. That's some deep roots for two partners to start a business together. I mean, I've started businesses together as well, but not, not with anyone I knew from childhood. You guys took that, you ended up selling it, I believe, to WPP, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Was it shortly after then you started leading uh, Burson Mar- Marsteller? Around 2001, we started the transaction. And then by 2005, we, we finished it and, and they asked me to, to manage larger assets. And so, uh, so I hadn't technically been in PR, but, you know, I always joke that I started in PR at the top as, as head of one of the biggest firms. I knew a lot about messaging and polling and strategy. And so I tried to create a more evidence-based notion of, of, of PR. And we, you know, we were able to, I think, turn around Burson in a couple of years. So I know we tripled the bottom line. We we got the number one agency again. It, it was really, you know, an experience to me of, of how after having managed a small business and grown it from zero, you know, to take a big business that had been faltering, that had been declining for so many years, that, that had lost so much talent and bring in a team and turn it around. And that was, to me, you know, an incredibly exciting experience. And then it sounds like then the Clintons came into into some picture after that. Do I have my timing right? I may be a little off. Well, it was sort of during that, that period because I think one of the hairy things was was running Burson during the second presidential uh, campaign. But, you know, really, we did the 1996 Clinton re-election. And that is really, I guess, from, you know, we started out, you know, doing doing some polling, and then I eventually became kind of the chief strategist and, and running the campaign and doing the ads, and the campaign and the messages. And then I had, uh, after we won, he said, you know, I like your strategy meeting so much, I want you every week to do one at the White House. And so I had a unique meeting for about 40 or 50 times every year uh, to work with the president and the top staff on communications and domestic policy and, and public opinion. And uh, he said those those meetings kind of give us an advantage because it was uh, very rare in the White House, actually, that people from different disciplines uh, and jobs really get together as they did in those strategy meetings. And then that led to my also doing Hillary's successful Senate races and her her presidential race that that almost got there but didn't. Where did Microsoft come into play? Because for people that are keeping track, you've started one of the most successful research polling firms. <laughs> you've exited it. You've now running one of the top PR uh, firms and working with the president of the United States and his wife. Uh, <laughs> so where did Microsoft come in? You, you needed another thing to tackle? Microsoft sort of came in after... I did a lot of the managing of the uh, message and communications when they impeached President Clinton <laughs> that Microsoft called and said, you know, you did such a great job uh, with that. Maybe you could help us because it looks like we're going to, you know, they're going to go after us for man I trust. So, so that began what would be a very longstanding relationship. And I came in and created the message and message trained Bill and Steve and all the top executives. And, uh, 
designed actually a, a what's called, what became known as the sweater ad, uh, which was an ad that we put on with Bill Gates uh, right after the court said that Microsoft should be broken up. That was uh, became a, a bit of a phenomenon and was was incredibly effective at keeping opinion on the side of Microsoft. And uh, you know they became from that experience my largest client. And I got to a certain point at WPP. I turned around Burson and. Uh, you know, I said to myself, well, look, what's really happening here is the technological revolution is moving a lot faster than the holding companies are moving. And so I put it to Martin. I said, look, if you want me to keep doing this, I'm going to have to really move into digital quite quickly, broaden person out in that way. And there just was no clearly no ability for that to happen. So then I wrote Steve Ballmer and I said, look, you know, would you be interested if uh, I would tackle some of your toughest problems and you'll, you'll pay me a bunch of money? And he said, okay. <laughs> so I actually had a, an, an interview that started in DC and continued all the way down to Atlanta since I just went with him. So because we were talking for hours. And so he, he gave me a SWAT team to go after tough problems. And then he liked what I was doing. So then he gave me, you know, some of the, the advertising stuff I did. So he just gave me all of advertising and a $2 billion budget. And then Steve exited, and I was trying to achieve my goal of knowing everything I needed to know about technology there. But it also turned out, I think they needed people that knew everything about consumers uh, and people, that it was a really good mix. I mean, when I originally started my business, I used to build computers and kits. And so I was at least familiar with, you know, technology as it was. So it was a good mix. But Steve said, hey, that, that thing you told me one day, kind of at the water cooler about creating a digital first marketing company, I, I'd be happy to be your first backer. I went to Sacha and Sacha said, no, I'd like to stay another year, help me with the strategy and then do this. So, so that's what I did and uh, became chief strategy officer at Microsoft and then left to set up Stagwell uh, with uh, Bomber's backing and uh, started just me and an assistant and filed all the, the papers and, and started it up, you know, to having raised the money, at least to get going, and, and then had to had to begin, you know, what, what became the task of what I'd call filling in the marketing wheel. Really, how do you approach, you know, digital first marketing firm from the ground up? And this time you could you could do things the way you wanted to and learn, you know, I thought that WPP had great financial management, but the, the people management left a lot to be desired. So you, you explain the central notion, if you will, of Stagwell, this like digital first ground up build. When did MDC enter the picture? So we spent a few years building, building, building that up and, and we added, a, you know, groups of firms and, you know, platform building, performance marketing, online fundraising, obviously politics was something I knew about, research. And, and we, we built it up in that way. And I said, well, over at MDC, frankly, are, are the, a lot of the assets we don't have, we couldn't find if we wanted to, but that are the other half of the marketing coin. And so, so we had all of these scientific, internet-based, research-based services over here, growing numbers of engineers and innovation team, but not a single creative firm of, of scale. And so over there, they were sitting with all of these creative companies at scale, bad management that seemed to be between making bad deals and bad management or no management. Well, you know, it's a company that was getting into 
one financial trouble after another. So I l- we looked at that and having built up Stagwell with strong growth, with 20% margins, with procedures for each, you know, I think how to do it and having the contacts to bring in management teams. I said, well, let's, let's see if we can add MDC and then we will have the complete picture. And the problem with MDC is the center. It's not the individual companies. Some of those 72 and Sunny and Anomaly and Donor and F&B, those are amazing companies with incredibly talented people that produce superb results, but they're, they're in a, in a you know, financial pickle. And, and so I got my investors to go so far. At that point, I pick, picked up a second investor uh, to go so far as saying I could invest $100 million in it, uh, which went pretty far. But then MDC said, well, look, we'll take your $100 million, but Mark, you have to be CEO. So then I said, okay, well, I'll do that. And then I spent kind of two years reworking that kind of as I had done at Burson, changing the back office, you know, centralizing, creating a new strategy for MDC so that companies would be grouped together and that tech companies like YML would work with Anomaly or Instruments would work with with 72 so that the this was no longer just about individual creative projects but but could win bigger and bigger assignments across multiple disciplines you know through the the system of networks that I was able to set up and put the best managers who really knew the business out there on the front lines and giving them greater responsibility outside of their earnouts so so I kept the talent and you know we began to come back and and achieve growth and so at that point, I just had a bunch of spinning plates over at MDC and spinning plates over at Stagwell, and they, they were all spinning, but they were spinning separately. Yeah, there are investment bankers listening to this. They're going to be like, well, why didn't you just buy them outright at the low point of MDC? And I know you're a strategic buyer. You're, you're doing it for the combination of the two companies. But why did you not try to just bring them all together at, at the outstart? Well, I did. I, I, I actually had, had for two years met with management as, the business, as MDC was sinking and said, you know what, I've got the perfect complementary assets. I've got the management skills. I could come in here. And I assumed that the, the CEO who was, was there, I assumed he, he was just temporary because he didn't have a lot of knowledge about the industry or the business. No, he, he, they kept saying, no, we have a plan. Don't bother us. We have a plan. Don't bother us. And then I actually came in with Apollo with a, with a $6 offer and they rejected it. Right. And then they rejected it. And then their stock, you know, fell in half. And then I wound up picking up the shares for, you know, between three and $4 instead. But my investors, because the company at that point was not exactly, you know, an, an even keel, then they gave me, gave me a limit. And so then People were amazed that I could put any kind of deal together, you know, if we could just do it partially. But nobody came through. Nobody wanted, really nobody wanted it. They had rejected the best offer that that they had. And so then they got something that, that wasn't as good. But um, in the end, worked out. I mean, stock now is significantly above uh, $6, knock on wood, you know. I think that, uh, that that everything managed to work out, but only after a couple of years here of coming in and, and just taking huge costs, you know, realign, you know, if you have, if you have like 20 pieces of real estate with individual leases, you're just going to have such incredible cost and waste because some people are going to take all these leases anticipating to grow and then they don't grow and then you're stuck with space. And 
I mean, there was just all sorts of crazy stuff. But to go back to my original thesis was, hey, these are really excellent, talented companies, people who are working hard, that this was a, an, an amazing group of people and skills here. And I think that that was 100% correct. And I, and I think they just had no idea how to run, um, you know, a more scaled business uh, in a way that would work collectively for everybody. You know, the pundits of the industry, if you will, they rail against holding companies. And this is an example where, the, you know, the underlying assets, like you said, 72 donor anomaly, they have done phenomenal creative work uh, for their clients. And unfortunately, we're saddled with all of this bad financial uh, management. But, you know, flash forward, you, you've now combined them. You've restructured, recapitalized the company. What is the vision for Stagwell now? Yeah, so let me say that that little part you skipped over, that was a year. <laughs> of, uh, Blood, was a sweat, year. and tears, I would imagine. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you know, I came out with a with a proposal when the stock was trading at a dollar and nobody was, was buying it. And, you know, and then, then you needed, because it was a conflict transaction, you needed an independent committee. And then, then you had three sets of lawyers and then you had two investment bankers. And then you had, a, even after I made an agreement, some investors who wanted more, then you had bondholders that had to be negotiated with. You had a tax receivable agreement to be, to be calculated out. And then at the end you had a, you know, a semi-activist type investor opposing everything. And then I had to go kind of get all the votes around an investor, and here we are. But, you know, the employees on both sides saw the vision that it would help them to be together into a, into a larger platform. We were able to, to, to refinance, you know, the bonds and put a, a stable capital structure in. We were able to tell a unified story, you know, in the marketplace. Look, we're going to keep going and growing here. We're at about, you know, 2 billion revenue. We have great creative great research and insights. We have, you know, fantastic, you know, data targeting and data assets. And we have digital transformation, you know, a thousand engineers who can do that. We have, you know, the what I call the four layers of the marketing cake today. And we're, we're going to increasingly be able to bring those to bear in a, in a synchronized way. And I don't think anybody's put together something like this, you know, in, in quite some time, you know, just right for the times and, and poised to shake up a marketplace, which is, you know, look, it's a very clubby marketplace, you know, people go from the firm, big, one of the four big firms, and then they go to the company and then they hire one of the big firms and, and maybe sometimes they go back and forth. So, so we're going to have to break into the club. I'm interested. I mean, I, I didn't mean to gloss over all the pain, sweat, and tears that you put in, first and foremost. To use the political uh, analogy, you know, you've, you've been a candidate that won election, had a scandal, had a recount vote against you in California, and you come out smelling okay in the end. <laughs> so a lot of moving parts there. But tell me a little bit, you, you mentioned the four layers of the marketing cake. Can you highlight what those are for people that may not have heard that before? First, you have, have to have great creativity. And so that, that to me, is the top layer. And, and I think it's the layer of marketing that, that people are most used to. Well, but then you're going to have to have uh, great research and insights because, you, because marketing today is, is highly strategically. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. 
Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Be uh, driven. And and then you're going to have to be able to take the, the, the insights and the creative and you're going to have to have to really be able to to target it right and so you have to have a, a media operation that can target it across so many different channels and you know find precisely you, you know the the right people and then you also have to have a digital transformation operation because you you're probably going to be building not just a website but a consumer experience uh, the transactions you're you're going to be building a, a kind of an, an entire system now uh, through which people can either get a, an experience of what the products are like or or be able to purchase the products. And so yeah, you, you have to be able to to do all of those things kind of as I, as I say that, look, if you have really good creative, I think you can two or three X a, a campaign. I think if you have really good targeting and you could really two, two or three X, and I think if you have a really good strategy, you can two or three X. And if you get them all right, at the same time, you can almost 10x a campaign, and I don't, I don't think people appreciate how you've got to put those together, have real talent across those areas, uh, and have that talent work together. That is what you need to do in order to, what I always say, is to get the right ad to the right person at the right time. As I hear you talk, I mean, one of the questions I wanted to ask is, why is this just not another holding company? But as I listen to you talk, you're not the normal holding company chairman. <laughs> you're not an accountant, you're not a finance person. Uh, you've actually done the work. Do you feel yourself like that's a reason why this is a different? Yes, uh, absolutely. It was one of the one of the core principles was let's have people who were running a marketing company who actually came out of marketing. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing, right? I mean, maybe, I mean, that was a theory. I mean, I, you know, I, I met with the first CEO of MDC and after I had dinner, I said, you know, I can do this. And then one day I was at Microsoft and I, I was just chit-chatting with the, the head of one of the, the big four uh, that, that was in for, you know, some, a group dinner. And so I, I, turned, I, I turned to him and I said, well, you know, what do you think of the Microsoft brand? I was just making chit-chat. And he says, how should I know? I'm a lawyer. <laughs> so, you know, imagine if you turned around to like the CEO of Boeing, what do you think of the 737 Max? How should I know? I'm an accountant. That, you know, that just wouldn't fly. So I thought, well, okay, we, because we'll have greater access to talent and greater understanding of the industry and also a greater understanding of what the people who work here kind of go through at different stages. Remember, I was one of those companies that was, that was acquired corporate would call, don't let corporate see anything. I understand all the different roles and, and, and general reactions, right, that people have to the, to the structure. And the most important thing to me that I saw in the big holding companies was that no one collaborated with each other, that they, they occasionally they were thrown together, but they really didn't like each other. 
They didn't collaborate. Management didn't seem to like them either. And yet the, the, the core of these businesses are, are the, the people who, who have built the various processes and brands and names. And if you can get them together, you can synergize the capabilities here. And we have to kind of take that to the marketplace and say, well, okay, when I was just Stagwell, you'd give us a two, $3 million contract, or you were just MDC, you could get a, you know, a $5 million you know, creative set uh, of assignments. But, but together, we're, we're, we're 10,000 people here. We, we cover every discipline with real expertise. We're digital first. We've got incredible capabilities here in, in engineering and, and data that go along uh, with these great creatives. There should be no assignment, at least in America, of any size that we couldn't tackle. And my goal is, look, we could now tackle, I think, any assignment of any size in America. We have to grow to be able to tackle any assignment of any size in the rest of the world. And that's going to take, right now we have good coverage in some areas, but I want to really expand that coverage so that we can we can compete even more effectively on a global basis, particularly when there are many digital first operations out there in secondary markets that haven't been touched because the big ones bought all their their assets in these markets 40 or 50 years ago uh, and so we're finding that there's there's incredible transformative power in our affiliate program that, that brought 20 or 30 affiliates now and that will also turn into a farm team for acquisitions so definitely global ambition it sounds like and you've got most recent announcement is you're combining assets into Stagwell Media Network. What is that new media entity meant to do for you guys? Well, I think that was to to really take advantage of both the great skills I think across everything, and basically, if if you kind of look at it, it's it's really the most work that we're doing post merger is saying, look, we can have a much stronger, vibrant media operation here, one that again is primarily online placement by, by putting together Forward PMX, which is really a global company with, with over a thousand people in it, Assembly, which is a highly rated, highly respected, both online and offline media placement company, and Gale, that, that has in both an incredible CRM operation and has also grown to become a creative media consultancy. And when you look at this, you know, and, and add to that kind of the influence marketing of, of MMI. So we have here a suite of services from the top of the funnel in the performance marketing down to loyalty. And combined, I think this is, again, a very hard to beat second to none type operation. I think that now that, that will, will, will and is and is gaining you know, significant new clients and wins in the media space. It makes a lot of sense to bring media, those different assets together and companies together on the media side, because there's, there's a lot of scale and efficiency that you can get, not only in pitching, like you pitch the full funnel to your uh, point, but a lot of those strategies need to kind of weave across those interactions as well in terms of how you place it. And to your cake analogy earlier, the targeted media goes across all those different elements as well. It's interesting because much of the history of the of marketing services over the last 20 or 30 years was really procurement trying to split media from creative and that they could get an edge from that and then all the companies had to do that but in the in the digital age to get the right end to the right person at the right time then you have to have a creative a creative ad you have to have a, a target in mind and you have to you have to get that 
that target precisely at the time. And that means a much closer coordination. Like if I just use an example, I always, I always have this thing, are you Coke or are you diapers, right? And if you're Coke, if you're Coke, you're every person kind of product, you should be all over on TV and massive billboards and and as broad a reach media as you possibly can have. And then when I read somehow that they're going everything online, I say, well, okay. Um, but if you're, if you're diapers, if you're diapers, really, there are only three or four million people who are having children a year out of 330 million. Uh, half of those already had a child and already made a decision. So you've only got two million, say, fresh decision makers, and they only think about your product diapers in the kind of the second trimester through, you know, when they're putting together little kits and things and through maybe the first couple of first month when they're, you know, practically using it. So you have a, you have less than 1%, you have less than kind of three months to, to find. So there's a premium there on, on what targeted marketing can do to be effective. And the person with the best database who can find people in the decision-making phase and hit them with the right ad and offer, you know, at that time, that's going to be the most efficient marketing machine, right? And, and so if you're a product like that, then you really need to have invested in the, in the digital marketing infrastructure, because if you're doing broad scale TV advertising, you're going to run out of money quickly because 98% of it is being wasted. Well, I applaud your success and fortitude, frankly, for making it through all those trying times. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing where Stagwell goes next and and how how you uh, how you accelerate the company from this point forward. But I, I want to switch gears a little bit. We like to get to know you a little bit deeper as we go forward. And one of my favorite questions to ask everyone that comes on the show is: Has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? I'd have a lot of experiences like that. I know, and I, I had a lot of, I, I always try to, to learn the strengths and weaknesses, whether I work with President Clinton or Bill Gates or Tony Blair or Martin Sorrell, for that matter, what the strengths and weaknesses are, and Steve Ballmer. But the defining, you know, when I was 10, uh, my father got sick and, and passed away. And that really was a defining incident in my life because, um, that point, they, you know, my I was left with me and my mother and two much older brothers, ten and twelve, and uh, you know we didn't have a, a safety net. I mean, shockingly, my father's partners kind of took his business. He had a, a chicken-related business, and uh, they gave us ten thousand dollars a year for ten years and all the chicken we could eat, uh, and told my mother if she got a lawyer they would throw around on the street. So she took that. And so I was always going to become a lawyer, right, as a result of that experience and almost did. And, you know, that that was, you know, there. And when later on I got into college and so forth, my, my brothers, you know, just paid for it. They said, well, you know, kid got into a great school. We're going to have to make sure. So, so that family experience, having to live through that, having been thrown on our own but with not much to fall back on, um, that would be a defining experience for anyone, and you know it was it was it was it was quite a I always feel for anyone who has lost a parent in an early age. It's a it's a you know a devastating experience. I think people that do that or have things that happen to them that early in life, you you tend to grow up a lot faster than everyone else around you. I don't know if you feel that way or not. Well, yeah, I did. It's like so in order to pay for my 
school tuition. My mother went back to substitute teaching in the South Bronx, and I always used to joke she would do the teaching and she would bring all the papers back and I was, I was like 11 and I would do all the grading. <laughs> so they didn't know that I was grading all their papers. That's hilarious. What advice would you give your younger self if you're starting this journey all over again? I always tried to set my sights and, and I'm pretty happy with, with, the, with the path. I think I learned late, you know, I think that I was definitely one of those people who spent like 99% of their time working as you really had to do when you had a startup and, in, in your own company. And uh, I think at the time, I, I always tell people the biggest difference between today and then is, is B, I learned a lot of time management from Steve Bomber because I had an office outside his and it's like, it's 530. It's the biggest company in the world. It's making tons of money. And he's going home. How's he doing that? <laughs> and so, and uh, I'm watching him go home since I'm sitting there in the office. So then I realized he spent just an incredible amount of time planning out his time before he did it and, and was incredibly effective time manager. So I think that was really helpful to me in realigning my work life. I would have liked to have discovered that earlier. And then I also would have liked to have discovered somewhat earlier that not to be afraid of using capital. That, that when we started our business, you know, Doug Schoen and I, we got a credit line for 200000 And the entire point was never to use the credit line because, oh my God, once you use the credit, you're sunk, you're in, the banks own you. And what I learned later on was, you know, that uh, later on when I started this thing at age 60 or then I couldn't go back and do it the way I did it as a as a 20-year-old. Right, I'd have to do it using capital and buildups, and I had a had a really fixed time window to accomplish things, and and so I created a strategy of okay, how could we get from zero to two billion, right? Whereas I spent you know twenty years getting from zero to eighty million, and so I kind of understood having worked through the holding companies, having been at large scale enterprise like Microsoft, you know how you use scale and finance to to succeed and grow. Uh, in a way that I just wouldn't have have dreamed of as a 20-year-old. It's a really important lesson, too, and very key to what you're doing right now, <laughs> frankly, uh, you know, and polishing uh, over-leveraged assets back into a normal, a normal structure. Well, a couple marketing questions before I let you go. Are there any topics you believe marketers need to be learning more about right now, or you're trying to learn more about yourself? I'll just give you, look, I'll give you two or three. Obviously. I think first and foremost, everybody has to has to understand what is their digital layer in their product, right? What is the appropriate level of what I used to call at Microsoft, the digital layer? So if you're hailing a, a taxi, the digital layer is the app that uh, hails the taxi for you instead, right? And, inter and, dis and intermediates the process. And so, you know, do you have a product, right, that that lends itself to a digital layer, and what is that digital layer that that transforms uh, that transforms? I think first and foremost, when people fail to do that analysis, they they fail to move from pure bricks and mortar or pure product development to how they can really do something that takes advantage. You know, I wrote two books on microtrends that takes advantage of the drive towards towards customization in products, and and so I think. That's clearly number one. Uh, number two, a big topic of mine has always been competitive marketing. I think coming out of politics, I think that most companies fail to exploit the, the, the weaknesses 
of of their opponent uh, uh, competitors. And I've done it in a number of ways. You know, I I I, I created a, my really my very very first commercial assignment was was for AT and T to deal with uh, MCI. And in six weeks' time, came up with messages that completely obliterated them because most kind of upstart competitors like that who go against incumbents have inferior products that get glossed over and uh, you know even in the in the like the razor industry there's hot competition but oftentimes what you find is people aren't competing with a better product they're competing with a product that's cheaper that they're passing off as not as good and the incumbent just stands there until they lose more and more market share and until it's too late. So I'm a very big you know, proponent of people understanding how to do that with humor, with style, and how it can, can actually be, in a, be in a, an effective tool you know, in, in the marketplace. You know, and, and I think obviously I've been always a big proponent of, you know, I used to give a, a good talk at uh, at Microsoft called data or anecdotes. <laughs> and it used to start with something like, who do you believe more, your market research department or what your daughter or spouse tells you? <laughs> okay, and it would always start out two thirds, daughter or spouse or or child. And uh, I'd have to convince them that anyone who would marry them and that their, their children were so fundamentally atypical that that was probably a big mistake. Uh, and that by the time their child is using something, unfortunately, probably a billion other children are. So that was not the way you were going to get ahead of the marketplace. And so getting people comfortable with kind of interpreting data, you know, and having a reality around that interpretation has been core to developing, you know, game-changing strategies. And I think, you know, I try to proselytize behind that as a as a methodology. Are there any brands or companies or causes that you personally follow or take notice of? Well, I mean, I mean, there are just, there are a lot, <laughs> right? I, you know, right now I'm, I'm very concerned. I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned, particularly about uh, the preservation of the first amendment. Uh, I have a, a foundation, the new center.org that, that I helped to grow that really is, cares about how do we achieve bipartisan or two-party solutions to problems and how do we keep the the playing field of, of democracy which really revolves around freedom of speech you know open and fair uh, and I think those are you know those those are big issues and I think you know advertising is speech <laughs> so so at a, at a certain point uh, don't worry they you know they come for you too well that's good that's that's a good cause. And uh, I think the notion of bipartisanship, I would welcome and embrace. And if, I, I think if the country could experience that again, we might all realize it's a better place to live. I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> so, last question for you. What do you feel like is either the largest opportunity or threat that marketers are facing today? I mean, look, digital disruption is the is both the biggest opportunity and the biggest threat. And our marketers going to be able to to harness effectively the promise of the digital revolution. The promise of the digital revolution should have been much more effective, much more highly targeted, and lower cost marketing. And the problem with that is, you know, are we achieving lower cost? Doesn't look like it, even though it should be much cheaper. Are we achieving really excellent targeting? Well, well, now I think some of that excellent, some of those excellent targeting tools are are being weakened. 
right? And then, and then, do we have, you know, compelling advertising? I mean, most digital ads are junk. I mean, they're horrible. I think the television ads have become incredibly polished art. And even if they're offbeat or wacky, sometimes that that just makes them or or sometimes they're just you know so incredible. Like some of the stuff that uh, F and B did, you know, that won some won awards recently on the on the on the crash data set. I mean, they could take even something as boring as a crash data set and and turn it into a you know a, a movement of significance. I think they're incredible. I think we have a long way to go to develop effective digital ads. Uh, I think there's some issues with the targeting system, and the cost is really quite high for something that, that, that should be less expensive than television marketing. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. 